Hello and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Boundary Rider Podcast. My name is Lachlan McCurdy and as always, I am joined by Nick Savage. Nick, how are you? Look, I feel chuffed. I'm lucky enough to be speaking to one of the uh, Tokyo Olympics B-list celebrities oh. at the moment. Oh. Um, you built a bit of a reputation for yourself over the past couple of weeks, mate. Tell me about how you enjoyed your uh, little Olympics campaign. Look, that's what late nights and uh, some mid-level Photoshop skills can get you, apparently, uh, and, and Excel as well. But, uh, yeah, look, just I, I get around the Olympics. I wanted to know when all the Aussies were getting involved, so I figured everyone else would like to know too, and it kind of proved to be a little bit popular. But, no, it's it's been a great fortnight of uh, a bit more than a fortnight, really, of international sport. And, I mean, now I guess we're just going to have to talk about cricket. Not that there was any Australian cricket that I think has been happening in the last week or so. I, I haven't seen anything, have you? Well, certainly there's nothing on. I flicked on my KO, there was nothing there. I, f- I flicked mm. on the 7 Plus app because I've been on there a lot, nothing there either. But uh, apparently there's been a, a little T20 series over in Bangladesh and the lowest scoring T20 series that has been at least three games in international history apparently I saw in the Sydney Morning Herald. Look, we're going to unfortunately have to dissect all of that. We're going to look at the T20 World Cup and kind of think about who would be in our 15 player, 15 to 20 player Australian squad if it was to be named today. We're going to chat about the England and India test. Obviously, that first test got underway, plenty happening there. The 100 is underway and has been pretty well received, which has been pretty good. And of course, plenty of BBL news. So lots happening in today's show. Before we get started... If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, leave a rating, leave a comment, share it with your friends and family. It is really much appreciated as we get into this massive summer of cricket. And where else to begin but Bangladesh versus Australia, the five-match T20 series, which Bangladesh came away with a 4-1 victory. It was it was quite remarkable, really. I mean, obviously, Australia sent over a weakened team because they had so many players left home. Aaron Finch suffered an injury in the West Indies, so their captain wasn't there. Uh, but I think for most observers, no one, most Australian observers, more uh, to put it more correctly, would have predicted this sort of result. But because of Bangladesh and their growth in T20 cricket, for a lot of people, this result isn't much of a surprise because they've been really good in T20 cricket in recent years and are growing a really great squad. And I guess as Australian fans, we finally got a chance to see it because it's been so long since we played them. They certainly went over to Bangladesh, I think, with the ideal of this is a chance to not only fill in those final gaps in the Australian T20 squad for the World Cup, but hopefully build up a bit of momentum. Australia had never lost to Bangladesh in the T20 format before mm. last week, and now they've achieved it four times in the space of six days. Um, and, and certainly that last game was a really a real punch to the gut for Matthew Wade's side to be bowled at for 62, comfortably their lowest score ever. And I only noticed this today. They didn't hit a single four throughout the entire innings, an entire T20 innings without hitting a four. There were three sixes, admittedly, but the first time I can think of a T20 innings with no fours. Um, but apart from Mitch Marsh... No one put their hand up for this World Cup squad. You think about the experience that's there. Moses Henriquez, Alex Carey, both with plenty of international experience. None of, none of them scored any runs. And even the young guns in the Big Bash, who who were seemingly finding 50s every second game on Australian soil, Josh Felipe, uh, Ashton Turner, they also had dismal series. And it's just sort of raised more questions for Justin Langer than I think it's answered. And certainly they didn't achieve what they had hoped to in Bangladesh, not at all. I think there was a really interesting point. Uh, I, I hopped on the the Matthew Wade Zoom after the fifth T20 match. Um, let's hear a bit of what he had to say and then we'll go into it. I do not blame the younger players one 
one bit. Um, myself, um, Moe Zonrix, Dan Christian, we're all experienced players and we needed to do better in this series. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not hiding behind that. I needed to be better as well. Um, so those guys got the opportunity to come out here and experience these conditions. And as I said, if they take it as a learning opportunity, um, like we all should be, then to become better players, then, you know, at least we've learned something on this trip. In terms of, um, if, you, if you're talking about like um, Finch and Warner and Maxwell and those guys, um, it's, not, it's not vital that we all um, play games together before the World Cup. We've all played plenty of cricket together. Um, they've grown up together, Finchy, Warner, myself, Maxwell. We've all, we've all grown up in the same kind of team. So um, Steve Smith, guys like that. So, it, uh, you know, and our, and our bowling unit have bowled together numerous amount of times. So I don't think it's the difference between playing well in the World Cup or not is that we have to play games together to, to know what each other's doing. We all know what we're doing. Um, we've played together for long, long periods of time now. So um, whatever happens with our preparation going forward, that won't be an excuse by the time we get to the World Cup. So that's Wade talking about the series and kind of saying two things in particular there. Firstly, that a lot of the experienced players, he obviously names himself, the likes of Moses Enriquez, Dan Christian, didn't step up this series and it's hard to disagree with him there. And, and then the other thing is obviously looking towards the T20 World Cup, that he doesn't feel the team actually needs to, to play games as their full strength 11 going into the World Cup, which I personally find interesting. I, I feel like uh, there's so much in T20 cricket that it's about chemistry. It's about building those partnerships and combinations that surely going into the biggest T20 tournament in the world, you'd want to get some games under the belt. But let, let's start with the experience part, because I know that's something that I, I guess you identify from that series too, that so many of Australia's big names essentially just failed to fire. It is also worrying um, that it does seem that heading into the World Cup that the Australian squad will be relying so much on a few number of players. It feels like all the weight of runs will need to rest on the likes of Finch, Warner and Maxwell. Mm. It, it seems right now from the, the perspective of cricket fans, if those three don't fire, then there's not a lot else like that, that can score the runs in this squad. Um, on the upside, the bowling depth looks fantastic. Like the fact that we didn't have Cummins over there, we didn't have the Richardsons. Um, our spinners look great at the moment. Bowlers a big tick there, but certainly in the batting department, you can't be going to World Cup just relying on two or three batters, and they're not going to win a title that way either. It's just been a problem in Australian cricket generally. It's not even just T20 cricket anymore. It's just Australia's batting depth below the sort of top three or four players in each format has been really concerning. And it's it's a lack of consistent runs at domestic level. It's a lack of experience on the international stage all playing into this feeling. And it's like we, we prioritise much of the summer. I think it was Rick Finlay who made the really good point on Twitter talking about how we've kind of shuffled the, the international summer around to fit in in the Big Bash League at the prime time of domestic cricket and one day cricket and test cricket has fallen by the wayside a little bit, but T20 cricket hasn't caught up because of it. So there's just a lot of concerns there in terms of we our batting depth just hasn't grown considering the amount of effort that we put into it. And it was only a couple of weeks ago that Alistair Dobson, the head of the Big Bash Leagues, did say that the point of the Big Bash wasn't to help the international talent, but was to grow the network of fans in, in women and, and, and kids as well. So in that respect, it's doing its job. It, it's more kids and, and women are getting involved with cricket, but certainly we're not seeing any improvement in the international side. 
Well, let's take a look at some of the positives out of the series. I mean, there's not a whole heap, but I think obviously Mitchell Marsh is one that we um, you kind of mentioned earlier. And for you, does that lock him in Australia's full strength or the, the number one T20 side at the moment, what he's been able to do in the West Indies and now in Bangladesh? Uh, for me, it would. Uh, the selectors might see differently, but for me, he would slot in, in that number three spot, um, certainly for at least the group stage of the World Cup. The, the only other contenders would be uh, Labashane, Smith, and probably Matthew Wade. Um, for me, Matthew Wade has scored enough runs to validate getting that spot. And Steve Smith and Labanshane just haven't played enough T20 cricket recently to entrust them with such an important role on the side. So there has been talk of Smith potentially playing as a finisher down at number six or seven, which is, is interesting. And is something he maybe hasn't done so much before, but I don't think there's a lot of options really, except for maybe Dan Christian. Mm, that's true. All right, let's 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 kind of look at it now. There's more to chat about this series, but we're kind of on the topic now. If you were to pick a top seven for the T20 World Cup, for Australia's first match of that tournament, who are you picking? You go first, and then I'll hit you with mine and see where if we've got any differences. So I've got mine here. Um, it's uh, I spent a little bit of time thinking over it, but I've gone for Finch Warner, reliable opening partnership. They've done the job for five years. Uh, Mitch Marsh at three, Glenn Maxwell four, uh, Stoinis, Matthew Wade as the keeper, and Ashton Agar at seven and as the fifth bowling option. Okay, that is very interesting because we have the exact same top six at the moment. <laughs> um, I, I'm undecided on Agar in terms of seven because I think he'll definitely be in the team, but they might pick as sort of number seven as another all-rounder, another big hitter. Um, so obviously, Someone like Christian, maybe. yeah, Dan Christian mm. potentially there, who at the moment is what I might lean towards just because of our lack of batting depth, just so we've got an extra batter in there because I, I'm confident in the sort of the role that uh, you've got Stark, you've got Cummins, you've got uh, Zampa and you've got Agar as probably your four bowlers. And then you've got someone like a Glenn Maxwell and your Marcus Stoinis and your Mitch Marsh, you can chip in there. So mm. I, I, I wouldn't be putting Agar at seven yet. I'm happy for him to be at eight. Um, but yeah, so I guess the big question marks are, has Dan Christian done enough at the end of the day? He's the only reason Australia won one match in Bangladesh. Um, he's 30 off the one Shakib over uh, is the only reason they won that game. Because really, if you take those runs out, if he only scores five or six, Australia probably collapse again and lose that match because they almost did. They tried to lose that game. So really, even though it was only an in innings of 36 or 37, oh no, 39, I think it was, you have to look at that innings and go, that won Australia the match, and that was the one match winning innings from an Australian in Bangladesh. So, in that sense, I think he has almost done enough to be in that squad. But again, it's it, it's a point of what sort of players do you want to be picking for the roles? How many players are they going to pick? Obviously, it's kind of been said that you can pick more than 15, but it's going to be a sort of a, a total cap on the amount of people as part of the touring party. So whether you pick mm. more players or less players. And I guess the other big question mark for me is someone like a Matthew Wade, that while he hasn't done enough with the bat, and that's by his own admission, there's really no other keeper in this in the country that you'd be picking ahead. Like, We've, we've spoken about Josh Inglis on this show a little bit, but you can't pick him to make his debut in a T20 World Cup as much as I'd like. I think we'd both love to see him play for Australia. I, I just don't think that would be the right place to blood him because then if it all goes wrong, he gets he gets to become the scapegoat. And no, it's just not what's needed. I think Matthew Wade has to play. I think he has to play down the order because he's just not cutting it as an only batter at the moment either. 
and especially with Finch and Warner there, there's just no spot for him in, in the top two for sure. But it is fascinating with Christian that when was the last time a player just based on one good over got selected in a World Cup squad? Because apart from that one over, he, he didn't have an amazing tour either, but he at least showed a glimpse of what he is capable of doing. And another thing to point out is Glenn Maxwell, um, as I think he'll serve quite a big role as a third spin option, as we saw Ashton Turner do. And on those pitches in Oman and, and the UAE, I think Max will be taking a lot more wickets than people realise. And Christian Agar at, at 7-8 brings so much balance um, to the batting and bowling in the side. Um, you look at England's short format side. They're stacked with all-rounders in that sort of 6-9 to nine spot. And, and I think Australia could potentially find it beneficial to do something similar. Thoughts on the idea of playing three spinners. We finally saw Australia do it in that final T20 against Bangladesh and it was arguably almost their, their worst bowling performance, I guess, as a spin cohort, only because they'd been pretty good in the other matches beforehand uh, with Dan Christian and, and Nathan Ellis actually mate, being the main wicket takers in that match. But it was still kind of exciting to see selectors and JL kind of go, no, we'll give this a go. We'll, we'll try and put Swepo, Agar and Zampa all on the one team. Well, I think you're down 3-1 in the series. This is the time to experiment, and I think it was definitely a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, depending on the pitches over there, you, you might not be doing it throughout the World Cup in the UAE and Oman, um, simply because you do have Glenn Maxwell as that third spin option. Um, so ideally, you'll have Agar and Zampa first choice in every game with Swepson there as a reserve if needed. But if the pitches are really playing up, if they are deteriorating very quickly, uh, then potentially Swepson might come in at the expense of another pace bowler. I think he's definitely the next spinner in line. I've been pretty impressed with what he's been able to achieve in his limited chances this tour. So I would expect him to be in or around that squad at some point. I mean, I guess the other big sort of Australian uh, team news we have to talk about, Trevor Hones has stepped down or has put in his resignation as head of selectors and George Bailey is set to take his place. I mean, it's definitely going to be a, a fresh look on the selection panel. Do you think we'll see many big changes to the selection decisions that are made anytime soon? Or do you think it'll just be sort of a, a slow turnover process? I've got a gut feeling that George Bailey isn't the kind of person to pick and trial people for one or two games. There was that really ugly period around sort of 2015, 16, 17, where they seem to pick players for one test match and then ax them never to be seen again. I think of Callum Ferguson, Joe Many, those sort of names. George Bailey is the kind of person who I think would look at a player and say, okay, He's playing the first three test matches of this summer and he's going to keep that spot. Um, that's just the gut feeling I have based on um, the interviews George Bailey has given. But am I wrong in saying that right now the selection panel is just Justin Langer and George Bailey? Is that it at the moment? I mean, at the moment, you're right. I mean, you got Trevor Holmes as the national selector and then you got Langer and George Bailey as the, the men's selectors. I mean, over on the women's side, we've obviously got a few more there. You've got Sean Flegler and Matthew Mott, then Julie Hayes and Avril Faye. But yeah, it's just JL and George Bailey. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there, especially with such a big summer coming up that I almost expect not to see too many more changes because they won't want to be taking any risks. Mm, no, spot on. Um, obviously, George Bailey was chosen when he was still a player and he was mm. still representing the uh, Tasmania and the Hobart Hurricanes and they trusted him with this huge responsibility and clearly they think he's the right man for the job so all the best to him hopefully it's a a long stint for him all right that's where we'll leave the Bangladesh and Australia series chat plenty more of that going to be coming up in terms of T20 World Cup preparations domestic summer starting but up next we're going to chat a little bit about the England and India test series
All right, Nick, Test Cricket was back after a bit of a break it started with the Tokyo Olympics still going hand in hand. So I'll be honest, my attention was kind of elsewhere over in Japan, but you had your eye on all the Test Cricket action between England and India in the first Test. I, I must assure you, I saw Virat Kohli getting out first ball, that lovely little edge off Jimmy Anderson. So I saw that, but fill me in. What else did I miss? What, what are the key takeaways that you saw from that Test? Oh, certainly calling being dismissed for a duck was the highlight. Well, for me anyway, but uh, apart from that, Joe Root, his century in the second innings, like a, a genuine old-fashioned captain's knock. Uh, we haven't really seen that a lot from Joe Root recently, except for the Sri Lanka tour, where he did dominate, but he just hasn't got the runs that he may have liked recently. Definitely over in India, he didn't, and against New Zealand, he was a bit ordinary as well. But hopefully leading into the Ashes, um, he can lead this very weak England batting side, because apart from Joe Root, there's still a lot of problems there. Um, obviously Ben Stokes wasn't available for this match and, and won't be available for, for this summer because of his mental health concerns. But um, yeah, what do you think of Zach Crawley? He, he really is having a horrid trot at the moment. He's averaging, I think, 11 in Test cricket this year. Yeah, it, it is kind of a concern because there's no one else sort of in English cricket putting their hand up for that spot at the moment. So it's almost like, are they going to have to try and repurpose someone a little bit to feel where Crawley's been playing? Like, Obviously, someone like a Johnny Bairstow has had a bit of experience up the top of the order. Do you kind of just bite the bullet and go, all right, someone with experience, let's put him up the top? Um, but yeah, it, it is very, it, it's similar problems to Australia, I guess, in a sense that beyond one or two players, if you're if the opposition bowling attack can get on top of your team, you do get concerned about being four or five down relatively cheaply. And it, it is something that I, th I fear we might see a lot from almost both teams this coming Ashes series, just because of the the supreme skill of both bowling attacks. Obviously, unfortunately, we heard the news that Jofra Archer will not be coming to Australia, which is a huge blow because I think you and I both agree maybe behind Ben Stokes, he is their second most important player in terms of coming to Australia. So that's one and two in terms of them wanting to come to Australia and winning in the Ashes that won't be here and obviously gives Australia a huge edge before a ball has been bowled. But I mean, I think England are definitely more suited in terms of covering their bowling losses as opposed to covering their batting losses, which is going to be a bigger concern. I mean, we saw someone like a Dowd Milan come out and play the last Ashes series over in Australia, and now he's nowhere near the test squad and is a T20 specialist almost. So it's, it is kind of bizarre that the way England cricket has gone, but yeah, it's, Crawley, I'm not sure. Root, he's been good, but he'll still have nightmares about Pat Cummins' delivery. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot going on in that England cricket team. And the thing is, there's still a lot going on in the Australian cricket team. So it's not really like we can sit back and go, ha, Australia, we, we've got this covered. At the end of the day, there's lots of questions for both teams before the, the Ashes series starts. Yeah, shout out to jo Georgie Parker for posting that Joe Root delivery every couple of days on Twitter. It always brightens my, my morning. Um, but no, as you said, like it's going to be a repeat of 2019 in a way when the batters from both sides are going to struggle. Um, but on this occasion, England might not have Ben Stokes. Um, and certainly you think of the England bowling attack, the only one who stands out as, as dominating in Australia is Joffrey Archer. Mark Wood maybe might like the Australian pitches. I could see him and maybe even someone like Ollie Stone. Um, but... Most of England's bowling attack is very suited for English conditions. And I, I just dread the idea of another Ashes series, which is 4-0, 5-0 with scores of 550 in every first innings. That just doesn't sound like an entertaining Ashes series to me. I'd love another Dave Warner 300 at the Adelaide over. What, I don't know oh. what you're talking about. 
no thanks. <laughs> Low scoring test cricket is uh, the most exciting uh, form of long format cricket. I don't know about you, but um, I'm pretty sick of Australia accumulating 600 in the first innings against Pakistan every couple of years. It's dull, 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 dull. Well, obviously, the, the other few things we learned out of that test, uh, rain never fails to disappoint in England, uh, which yet again, rain impacted a test match. Uh, I guess it's something that we're just used to now. But obviously, going into the second test match, Moeen Ali has been picked up in the squad and could, uh, I feel like you reckon, could be the end of uh, almost Jack Leach and his sort of test prospects for the, the near future. Yeah, I think, unfortunately for Jack Leach, Moeen Ali does have that extra the extra skill of batting. He can bat pretty anywhere in the order. He's batted number three for England before. So to have him as that spin option, but also be able to keep um, some of your batting talent there is the advantage. Um, so unfortunate for Jack Leach, he, he's had a fantastic test career to date. His numbers are as good as any spin bowler in the world at the moment. But certainly this suggests to me that England might be leaning towards Moen Ali for the second test. Maybe he'll occupy that number three spot. Who knows? It's certainly an option there, but... Yeah, looking at that broader squad, obviously you kind of build an England squad from the ground up at the moment. You've got your, your almost your undroppables in Broad and Anderson and when he's fit, uh, Mr. Wokes himself. And then you kind of just hope for the best beyond that. Um, obviously, Ollie Robinson is back after sort of what happened with him in the, the Kiwi tests and the controversy surrounding some old tweets that resurfaced. So obviously he served his punishment. I think everyone's pretty happy to see that he's had that sort of punishment and he's come back from it and he's apologized. So hopefully... That will be the start of his international career. It's not going to be the the end, um, which I think everyone is kind of glad for, even though it was pretty clear that those comments went on. So, yeah, I think that's that's come to a good end, that sort of saga. Uh, anything else you want to talk about from this test before we move on? Oh, just on Robinson. He, he was arguably England's best bowler of the game, actually. Mm. He took a five-wicket haul, his maiden test five-wicket haul. And if not for a drop catch against New Zealand, he would have had a five-wicket haul on debut as well. So certainly a great start to his career. And as you said, he's, he's served his time. He's accepted his punishment. And um, certainly, hopefully, we can just move on from that. And as you said, a start of hopefully a lengthy, lengthy career in Test Colours for England. All right, that's all from that Test match. We're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back with a quick wraparound with all the small news stories making headlines in the last week. All right, Nick, let's wrap it all up. Plenty of news. I want to start with the big one, tying my two interests together. The Olympics, the ICC confirmed on Tuesday that they're going to be putting together a panel to try and get the sport into LA 2028. That's only seven years away. It's going to be exciting. Uh, No concrete details on what it'll look like at the Games, but if uh, next year's Commonwealth Games are anything to go by, which is going to be an eight-team women's T20 tournament, I think it'll be kind of similar with like an eight-team men's and women's T20 tournament. Uh, Does this excite you, cricket at the Olympics? I I see no massive disadvantages to it. I think in the past, India may have pushed against the idea because they don't want anything taken away from their spectacle, that is the IPL. But um, if the if the pitches are great and, and there's availability in the schedule, then I think it's a it's a great move. Um, at the moment, I don't really see a space for it in the calendar year. There just seems to be cricket all the time. So how are you going to fit an Olympics into this? Um, but if hopefully the scheduling has settled down, then that would be fantastic. I, I do like the idea of you know uh, Sophie Molyneux, a, Olympic gold medalist. That has a really good ring to it. So um, 
uh, certainly something to look forward to, hopefully in 2028. Yeah, well, looking at the schedule, there's men's and women's T20 World Cup scheduled for 2028 already. So obviously it's going to be a big year if they can somehow get in cricket and the T20 World Cup. I guess my concern is kind of that obviously the T20 World Cup you'd think would take priority for cricketers just because it's been a bit more of an established institution. Do less people care about the Olympics? Is it a bit of a weaker tournament and then not as good a showcase? I, I think there's going to be a lot of questions around that. Um, obviously what sort of pitches are they going to be in LA? I mean, oh, can you imagine just a, a little, a dry deck up in uh, Malibu somewhere? Uh, I feel like Adam Zampa would have a field day if he's still playing by then. Oh, certainly. Uh, <laughs> I'll, someone have to go over there and scout out what LA have to offer. But, um, I think a more, a more realistic target for me would be 2032 in mm. Brisbane. Like that just seems to make more sense to me. And, um, uh, Look, obviously, the, having the Olympic final at the Gabba, like that in itself sounds like such a fantastic idea, but um, we'll just have to wait and see how it unfolds over the coming years. I feel like, um, obviously, for those who may not have seen the news, that on Monday we saw Netball Australia kind of say, we want to be in for 2032. So part of me thinks that maybe that has played a little part in Cricket's decision going, okay, if we might struggle a bit going up against netball potentially. Look, personally, I think cricket has the better case in terms of they're equally represented by both genders, whereas netball is kind of trying to have to prove itself in terms of its growing male participation, which is certainly there. And I think is is certainly a valid reason for it to be involved in the Olympics. I think it should have been there a long time ago. But if it was a netball versus cricket thing for the Olympics, then netball might actually struggle in that regards. But yeah, by bringing it forward to 2028 not only we're we going to see some big turners over at sort of venice beach in la we're going to see some uh i reckon the circuit would be great there but i think beyond that it just kind of evens the playing field a little bit more gives netball a bit more time and maybe cricket can just go look we've got the common games in 2022 which will be a perfect example of how cricket can work at a major international multi-sport tournament this is how we're going to implement it at the olympics and just go from there yeah, if the Olympics can have baseball and softball, I think cricket slots in beautifully as well. So, yeah, Los Angeles 2028. Um, hopefully we'll have Manus Labuschagne and um, Rishabh Pant over there leading the way in the final. Cam Australia Green. Versus Cam India. Green. Cam Green's going to be the true. guy. No, true. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cam Green captaining Australia in the LA 2028 Olympic Games. <laughs> that has a good ring to it for sure. <laughs> Speaking of wild connotations, I'm going to go back to the wild thing. Uh, Sean Tate is has just been appointed as Afghanistan's bowling coach, which is a very interesting sort of uh, appointment, not one that many people will have seen coming. Uh, Lance Klusner obviously is Afghanistan's head coach at the moment, so some pretty good former international cricketers involved in the coaching setup there. And, yeah, so he's going to take his role ahead of the ODIs against Pakistan and the T20 World Cup. And then obviously the one-off test at his home ground, Bell Reeve Oval in Hobart later this year. A bit of an interesting appointment there. I think it was two years ago at the World Cup when England fans were talking about the fear in their eyes, looking at Ricky Ponting and Justin Langer up on the Lord's stands. And I feel like Australian fans have the same fear looking at Sean Tate up in the Af- in Bell Reeve Oval, looking down and spurring on his um, <laughs> Afghanistan pace, pace to bowl a bit quicker. Um, does he have much coaching experience before Sean Tate? Maybe in the Big Bash a little bit, potentially? Um, 
Yeah, I think he's had a, he's got a level two certified coach uh, certificate from Cricket Australia. He's worked with the Renegades and has worked uh, with the Bangalore Tigers in the Abu Dhabi T10 League. I mean, for me, the interesting thing is that they brought someone like Tate on when they've got so many dominant spin bowlers. Uh, obviously, they kind of gone, oh, all right, good. We've got Rashid Khan, we've got Muhammad Nami, we've got Majibur Rahman. They're fine. Let's get someone in to really ramp up that pace attack, which is probably what people believe is missing from the Afghanistan team. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's an interesting lineup and he's the sort of guy who could really bring some pace. I mean, if if Afghanistan can unleash someone who has that sort of 140 plus, 145 clicks an hour and is really troubling batters with pace alongside the likes of Rashid Khan and Muhammad Nabi, that, that's an exciting bowling lineup. And don't forget the last time Australia played a test match down at Bell Reef, bowled out for 80-odd against oh, South Africa, oh. I believe. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of pace on offer that day. I think no. just Philander just keeping a, a steady seam and the ball was moving around hoops. So as you said, if they just find one or two decent pacemen for that test match, anything can happen, especially considering a lot of first-choice players maybe over, well, maybe in hotel quarantine after their World Cup campaign. Couple of bits of signing news out of the Big Bash League in the last few days. We've seen Michael Neeser lead the strikers and head back to Queensland with the Brisbane Heat. Nick Maddinson has hopped across town to the Melbourne Renegades from the Melbourne Stars. Joe Burns has taken Nick Maddinson's spot and will be playing for the Stars, while Steve O'Keefe, we thought he might have retired, but he has stayed on. He's going for another season with the Sydney Sixers to try and get that three-peat. Any of those particular moves surprise you? I think Burns surprised me a little bit, considering he was one of the few remaining foundation players from the Brisbane Heat. He was there in BBL01. Um I think the only remaining player is Chris Lynn, the captain. Oh, no longer the captain, actually. He he still mm. is with the Brisbane Heat, but I think he's handed over the captaincy to someone else. So, so yeah, a shame in that regard that we're not going to see Joe Burns and Brisbane Heat colours anymore. One of the original Bash brothers back in the day with Brendan McCullum. Um, but apart from that, a lot of exciting signings. And, um, oh, of course, one more season of Steve O'Keefe. Why not? He, he spoke the other day about how the hat-trick, the three consecutive BBL titles was a massive aim for him and is one of the reasons he decided to stay on. Well, the last thing we're going to chat about, you brought this up, Imran Tahir, the man that just keeps on giving. What has he done this time, Nick? Well, the 100, of course, has been happening now for a couple of weeks. We've both been busy with the Olympics and the, all the other cricket that's been happening. But I, I did have an opportunity to watch the 100 last night and Imran Tahir, how old is he now? 42 years old, potentially, the South African spinner. He's still going and last night, a hat-trick in the 100 with... Just a quintessential Imran Tahir delivery for the hat-trick ball. The wrong end went through the gate, crashed into leg stump, but I'd be the best fit was the celebration. He did a, a whole lap of the oval, essentially. Arms raised. You haven't seen it. Head on Twitter or the 100 YouTube page because it's it's Imran Tahir at its absolute finest. It reminds me of Brad Hogg when he used to celebrate wickets well into his 40s as well on the Big Bash. It's, it's great to see. It just produces highlight after highlight. Can I hope that he just stays in the game for as long as humanly possible because he is a fantastic entertainment value for the game of cricket. Nick, that is where we're going to leave this week's episode. Plenty to chat about, plenty more coming up. Our Aussie cricketers will be heading into hotel quarantine, so let's hope that they can keep busy and uh, hopefully not think too much about that uh, Bangladesh series because they'll kind of want to forget that one quite quickly. Nick, thank you for joining me. Cheers, Doc. Thank you, mate. Always a pleasure. And we'll catch you next time.